0: Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Employee-owned Bob's Red Mill offers organic, gluten-free, stone-ground products. Visit bobsredmill.com today.
1: I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. This week, we're looking at the way labels shape our perspectives on food.
2: I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but... Is it acceptable to judge a wine by its label?
1: There are some labels that I'd say are so bad
3: they're good.
2: As long as your paperwork's in good shape, you'll get a grass-fed label.
1: Tune in to this week's Meat and Three on Heritage Radio Network. That's Meat plus sign
3: T H R E E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we're coming to you live from the Smithsonian's Food History Weekend on Roundtables Day. Joining us are some of the nation's leading chefs, scholars, and food writers gathered today to talk about American regionalism. Stay tuned for much, much more. Coming to you live at the Smithsonian's Food History Weekend at the National Museum of American History, the home of Julia Child's Kitchen. The weekend's kickoff event was last night's gala presentation of the Julia Child Award to this year's fourth recipients, Chef Team Mary Sue Milliken and Susan Feniger of Border Grill and Two Hot Tamales fame. It was a magical night devoted to all the things that Mary Sue and Susan have accomplished, including the succession of influences they've had on the American dining scene and the introductions of innovations in global cuisine and things that many of the speakers commented on, we take for granted as part of the American dining scene today that were completely revolutionary in the 1980s and 1990s. And also all the influence they've had on mentoring so many people like um, Chef Sasha Alger, who presented the award to them. Today, the museum hosts the Food History Roundtables, which gather scholars, chefs, and food writers from across the country to consider what defines American regionalism. Now, regionalism is the idea that geographically specific areas, often self-defined, have their own unique food cultures, bound together by what naturally grows in the climate and the cultures and practices of the people who live there. These cultures and practices are a combination of natives and migrants who have brought, merged, and evolved their practices together over time. Now that's my own definition of regionalism. And of course, on this podcast, we're looking at regionalism through the lens of food. Now we're going to hear from some of the many thought leaders gathered here today to get their take on American regionalism.
4: I'm Corby Comer. I write about food for The Atlantic, The New York Times, Smithsonian, and many other places. And wrote the first book on the slow food movement and uh, the joy of coffee.
0: So, did you did you form any new impressions or conclusions from from the from that conversation? Well, I certainly
4: did. For um, we had Sean Sherman, who calls himself the Sioux Chef, meaning S-I-O-U-X. When you see his pigtails and his beaded neckband, you know what he means by Sioux. But he grew up on a Lakota reservation. And to hear him talk about his attempts to uh, research Native American cuisine, what did it mean? It was like gathering together the shards of a pot through all kinds of different earth through many different places and trying to put it back together because there was commodity food on the the tribal reservations from the 40s onward and even earlier, the 1930s. That commodity food was what the U.S. government gave at a discount to Native Americans. And he grew up eating it in the 70s and 80s. And so when he would try to eliminate uh, sugar, flour, white flour, meat, different kinds of meat that weren't raised on tribal lands and do dinners. The oldest people there would suddenly remember when they would go out gathering food in the woods and they were taught by their elders. And so it was recovering a kind of cultural memory that's been largely obliterated because Native Americans were sent to boarding school so that they could acculturate. Mm. And they ate this commodity food that was very cheap and it nourished them But at what price? It was the price of learning to be self-sufficient. And the politics of food. Ronnie Lundy, the author of Vittles about Appalachia, talked about the Pinkerton guards in the 1930s coming in to break strikes when Appalachians were coal miners who were trying to organize to preserve their own hours, dignity, and wages. The Pinkerton uh, guards sent in from the North to break them would first go into the farming families that had learned to keep an animal and grow a garden specifically for times of strike so that they wouldn't be reliant on the company's store. And so when the guards were trying to break the strike, they would go into these workers' houses, kill the animals, and pull up the food from the gardens. So food had this literal use as a weapon And a commodity to try to use against the oppressor. And this is recent. Yeah, I was going to say, what time period? The last hundred years, the 30s to the 40s, and even into the 50s. And so, thinking about how food has been used as a weapon, even against the people who owned it and who used it as part of our Native American history. And of course, although we didn't happen to have somebody from the African American community on the panel today, if you go down the mall from here at the Museum of American History to the Museum of African American History, you see the constant imposition of other kinds of food onto African Americans, and they're adopting other European food waste for the food of the people they worked for and incorporating some of that into their own food and much of the African food they could remember or the peas they could plant that became ingrained in U.S. southern food and what we think of. So this kind of cultural melting pot, which has a kind of aura of harmony by the very use of the word melting pot, is terrifically contentious and is always fought after. And that complexity was the main theme that emerged from today's panel.
0: Herbie Kummer, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure Hi. to see you.
1: Thank you. Hi, I'm Sandra Gutierrez. I'm a cookbook author, food historian, and journalist. I live in North Carolina. I'm of a Latino background, but I'm an American citizen from birth. So I'm a little bit from here and a little bit from there, but I love food in all of its iterations.
0: And so, what's your take or takeaway today or thinking on American regionalism?
1: I love what's happening in the United States with the change of people and uh, the waves of new immigrants that are coming into the country from all over the world. Um, Because I live in the south of the United States, um, I am particularly interested in the Latin American influx in southern foodways. I have found, I discovered a movement in 1996 that I termed the New Southern Latino Movement. And what I have found in my research, and which is the theme of my first book, The New Southern Latino Table, is that the South and Latin America share a very special bond. It's the same chain of land. So from Virginia southward, I do not include Texas and California, and I'll tell you why in a moment, but from Virginia down all the way to Brazil, we share a... Very similar things that make it very easy for these two cuisines to blend and form a new branch of Southern foodways now that people are finding themselves in the same territory. So I look at Southern foodways like a huge tree, a giant tree, with three important roots, which is where the shared commonalities come in. One is um, Native American cuisine, different groups, different tribes all over the Americas, but the original people in this territory. The second group, of course, were the Europeans, mostly the Iberics, so Spanish, Portuguese. And then the third group is uh, the African vein, which I find extremely important, something often overlooked in Latin America, but that is probably the most important vein that unites all of our food waste together. The other thing that I found during my research is that we have the same three uh, basic culinary techniques. So we, we brace, we roast and we barbecue. And the term barbacoa is actually a Taino term found in the what's now modern D- Dominican Republic by the Spaniards who came to colonize. So in the South, of course, barbecue is huge. And I love to point out that the term and the technique of barbacoa is nothing new to Latin Americans but I never get involved into who has the best barbecue. That's not where I'm going to. Unanswerable. I'll let other people get into that. I like it all. And the third thing that I discovered is that we share the same basket of basic ingredients, that being pork, uh, chocolate, squash, chiles, nuts, corn, of course, is the, the backbone of, 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 of our entire cuisines, and so on and so forth, beans, things like that. And so when you put them all together, we have so much in common that it took me then to research. The reason I mentioned this is regionality so important right now, but regions can be so very vast, really, and then we tend to be divisive and 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 try to find how to differentiate them. And I have found that there's more in common than differences. And so in my research, what I started finding out were similar dishes represented in both cultures. So, for instance, um, that the Low Country bisques and chowders that are very creamy and have crab in them and have uh, seafood, uh, very very common in the low country, are very similar to those found in uh, the Latin Caribbean called tapados. They're made also creamy with seafood, but they have addition of plantains, which is the African vein, uh, yuca root, which is Latin American, and then they have coconut at the base. That's what makes it creamy. But if you were to serve... Both of them at the same time, you would recognize it, Southerners would recognize it, Latin Americans would recognize it as a chowder, right? Mm. Uh, What has been happening now in the South since the 1990s is that the influx of Latin Americans coming into the Southern region come from all 21 countries. That is why it's different from Texas and California, where food movements have been Mexican-centric. That's why I don't include them in my version of what I discovered in this movement. While in the rest of the South, the movement has been uh, multicultural. So you have Argentinians and Cubans and Guatemalans and Salvadorians coming together into the South for the first time since the 1990s. In fact, we didn't even appear, Latinos didn't even appear in the census in North Carolina until 1991. Uh, Before then, we were a handful of Latinos per community. So in the 1990s, when NAFTA comes into play and all these new rules and um, about refugees and open up, you start getting this huge influx of Latinos, not only of different countries, but also different economic backgrounds and different educational backgrounds. So we're coming from all over the strata, if you will. So it's not an organized movement. It's very disorganized, <laughs> right? And as people come to the same area looking for a sense of belonging. The first place that you find a sense of belonging is in the food, mm. Okay, more so than in the language, because even Latinos do not speak the same Spanish. Mm-hmm. So we, we speak Spanish, but we can confuse each other very much with different words that are pronounced the same way, but mean totally different things. Mm. So once you get into the region, and you put people together in the same territory, and people bring their own techniques, but cannot find the same ingredients that they had at home, They start um, going and working with those that are at the base of Southern food, too, which are at the base of ours. And new dishes start being born with similarities. And all of a sudden, as new ingredients start coming in, now our ingredients are coming in. You get aji peppers from Perus. You get, of course, the chipotle pepper from Mexico. You start getting uh, the, the black beans that were not here before. All these ingredients start coming in. A new cuisine is being born where people who want to belong and want to get um, assimilated are already combining dishes because you find similarities. The interesting part about what's happening in the regional South with foodways is that this new um, Southern Latino movement started organically. It started with people at their home level. It did not start in restaurants. It's not a planned fusion the way chefs plan it. Mm. And it didn't start reaching restaurants until the beginning of the 2000s. And that's when you started finding pulled pork tacos in restaurants like the Carolina Inn, in in um, uh, Chapel Hill. Or Bill Smith, who's of course in the Mecca, Crook's Corner of the South, where Grits, Shrimp and Grits was created, started serving sweet potato tamales in his restaurant. So that didn't start occurring until it was already ingrained in the region through people um, cooking it in their homes. So I think that when we talk about regionality and and in particular southern foodways, what we're seeing is that food does not stay stagnant. It's in constant evolution. And particularly in what is the southern region, I think what's exciting is that it is food that comes from the land, it's food that comes, it's it's to me probably the most authentic American movement that's happening uh, is, is southern food in general. Yeah, because it is something that started here. We do not have as much European tradition without the African tradition and without the Native American tradition, so it's a real American cuisine. So now when you look at the tree of Southern Foodways, the roots are the three that I explained. The trunk are the people who are now um, building this new cuisine and started from the very beginning, right? And the branches are Creole, Cajun, Low Country, name it, you know, and one of them now is the New Southern Latino Movement, the New Southern Latino Branch. So it's always an evolution. Food doesn't stay the same. Food is constantly moving and people are constantly moving. We can't stop it. It just (laughs) happens. We can try to stop it. But the history of the world is one of of, um, nomadic movement, people looking for better life and um, as more people move and bring their food traditions and bring their culture with them and their ingredients, changes is automatically happening food.
5: Sandra Gutierrez, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for
3: having
5: me. Hi there, my name is Sean Sherman. I am an Ogallala Lakota Sioux an enrolled member. I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm a chef and I have a business called The Sioux Chef, S-I-O-U-X, where we focus on pre-colonial indigenous foods of North America.
0: So what do you think, how does regionalism and indigenous culture come together? Obviously, geographically, the United States is quite a big land area that was populated by many different tribes of people Mm -hmm.
5: do you you think as your research found regionalism amongst that does it still relate to most definitely because we look at where we are today where we have 574 tribes in the US 634 in Canada Um, an entire fifth of uh, I'm sorry a third of the population of Mexico still speaks indigenous languages so we look at indigenous language maps to really kind of place um, region because you see this patchwork of all these different uh, languages um, and every time you're like driving 100. you know if you drive across east to west north to south like every hundred miles you're going to be in a different language different religion different cultures different traditions um, and different foods and different flavors because you're also layering on the specific region that you might be in and the plants that grow around there and the animals that might be there so when you look at more colonial lines let's just say Minnesota for example where I I live um, you know it's completely different whether you're in the southern part of that region or the northern part of that region but the indigenous peoples that live there really help define that. So we know as we travel around if we're coming through Ho-Chunk territory or Apache territory or Arikara territory and what that means of the land and the region and the flavors and the foods that we might be able to find in those areas and applying some of those techniques to those cultures that some of them have been there for a long, long time, you know, thousands of generations. And there's so much beautiful knowledge to be able to pull from that knowledge base.
0: I think it's really interesting, I've heard you speak before about the fact that Native Americans often adopted or were forced to adopt more modern Western food that weren't necessarily native or were imported, but I think there's such an amazing potential in A, it's valuable, important knowledge not to lose and to stay. but also in terms of thinking about the future and surviving mm-hmm. environmental change, that there were many things that were very natural that had been lost, but mm-hmm. can be reclaimed, rediscovered, and might also potentially unlock
5: ways to to be more sustainable. Yeah, because there are hundreds of plant species around us that are completely underutilized when it comes to foods and medicines and things like that, Um, where, you know, we see a typical uh, person, a family might survive off of less than 25 plant species because they go to the store and they buy the same thing, the tomatoes, lettuce... You know, some corn, some potato, but they can stop counting by the time they hit twenty twenty-five, basically. Whereas indigenous peoples were forced to be extremely resourceful with everything that was around them, and to take that thousands of genera- thousands of generations of knowledge that was handed down to understand how to utilize these plants and animals around them, um, how to preserve them, and how to stay healthy. Um, so we feel like it's really important for people to see like how much we can pull from it, but it's also important to be adaptive. So we weren't trying to do a timepiece and cook like it was. Just Just 1491 and you know take a very (laughs) unique slice of of history but also to understand like we are this uh this mix mix of group and cultures and we've brought on lots of different kinds of knowledges and we live in this information age where we can absorb all sorts of stuff but for us it was taking the best of this modern world and then um, researching and um, you know developing and understanding how to utilize some of the knowledge from the past and from our ancestors as indigenous peoples to apply that to now to help us you know what we feel like is an evolution moving forward Um, and it is being adaptive and and, and, uh, acceptant of some of these other pieces that weren't necessarily traditional to our ancestors but are much a part of our modern day life today but also staying having a really foundation of understanding exactly what our ancestors foundations were
0: chef Sean german thank you very much for joining us thank you we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more from the smithsonian's food history weekend Few things scream autumn more than pumpkins. Julia Child's recipe for a fluffy pumpkin pie and the way to cook is, of course, Frenchified, using a pumpkin souffle filling to make it extra creamy. Remember to follow Julia's tip for making extra tender pie crust by mixing one part cake flour to three parts all-purpose flour for the dough. And of course, Bob's Red Mill has you covered in sourcing the best quality flours of all types. Visit BobsRedmill.com today and use the discount code Julia's Kitchen Pod, all one word in all caps, for valuable savings on both unbleached all-purpose flour and their super fine cake flour. Welcome back. We're talking to a bunch of talented people today on a special episode Inside Julia's Kitchen, recorded live during the Smithsonian Food History Weekend Roundtables.
2: My name is Ronnie Lundy. I'm an author. I've written several cookbooks that are called cultural cookbooks, um, and I focus frequently on Southern food, particularly the food of the Mountain South.
0: And so what do you have any key takeaways or perspective on American regionalism after the roundtables discussions today or just in general?
2: Well, it was very interesting. I, um, <clears throat> the way uh, the way that I was phrasing this in my mind before coming here was not so much about region, but about place. Um, what is place, and and what? How does that define us? And I come from the Appalachian Mountains, and I identify as an Appalachian. And so that is a region that has an almost mythological sense of place around it. There's the story of place. But it's also a a place that has been very specifically defined by the literal uh, geography and climate and geology of the region. Um, One of the books that I've written is called Vittles. It's about it's about contemporary Appalachian traditions and how they link back to the past. One reason that Appalachia has traditions that have remained is because it it. The literal place, the mountains, the way that they close in, the small space that they give you, the altitude, the climate there, the lack of a long day of sunlight has predicted a specific kind of growing season and a specific need for preserving food um, to get through the winter that is at the root of what Appalachian traditions are. So, So what I understand about place in your region is that it can literally define you it literally um, it literally makes up the cells in your bodies what you can eat what you can grow what you can cook how you can preserve it um, becomes it becomes your your interaction with place in terms of food is to take it into your body um, there's also a question about how we perceive our relationship to place in this country. And we've talked about that today in terms of specific regions and cultures. Um, This morning, I was on a panel with Sean Sherman, the sous chef, who talks about um, the Lakota tradition that he comes from, but also the history of Native Americans. And that history was defined initially by the Native concept of place as a living entity that we interacted with. We were in relationship with place. It influenced us, we influenced it, um, and we took care of each other. And the second part of the history of the Lakota, and this is also true of the history of Appalachia where I'm from, is that it was dictated by people who saw place as being a holder, a container of resources that they could access and use for their own um, gain. Personal gain, um, and so so the way that we interact with place defines how we see ourselves in the region, how the region is perceived, and how other people see us as well. Is and that may be a little too um, abstract? You no, need? I think it was right, no, great.
0: I think it was very very clear and interesting. It made me think of the. I, I've lost my southern tendencies to be able to say what in Appalachia is referred to as the Holler. And the Holler is what you're talking about. There's a whole mystical, mythic thing that even relates to books that have nothing to do with, like The Hobbit. Right it also speaks to what you're talking about is the physical environment and how you have to relate to your landscape right to live
2: that's so funny that you mentioned the hobbit because um when i was reading that uh in the 1970s i remember turning to my husband and saying this is a book about hillbillies <laughs> 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 because there is uh, there is a very similarity uh, not only a place but that sense of connection I think it's a, I'm pretty sure I'm getting this correct that in the Hobbit you celebrate your birthday by giving presents to other people and that sounded to me so much like Appalachia that there was that that um, uh, a level of generosity of, of of always sharing whatever you had, but also um, also a sense of not wanting to aggrandize yourself. Um, so, uh, yes.
0: But but don't you think that's related to the yes. physical yes. environment oh, in yes, the sense that much. interdependency yes. in a harsher physical climate is related to survival, right? Right,
2: right. There's that, and there's also there there also is um, if you had a camera, you would see that I keep making my hands together in a sort of V there is in Appalachia the sense of very protected space of a very tucked in Uh, a holler doesn't go somewhere you back up into it Um, I have a tendency to walk into a room and to find the corner and sit in the corner um, which I think is probably Appalachian too, somewhat Um, but but you grow up with that sense of being sheltered by the place that's around you. It's very, very different than how you feel if you, if you grow up standing on a shoreline, looking at the vastness of the ocean, watching the pace of it coming and going, or I've lived um, twice in my life, I've lived for seven years in northern New Mexico, which interestingly enough, I think has the same bone structure as Appalachia, but Appalachia has a lot more flora and fauna all over it, you know. Mm. But but there too, there there are the arroyos and there are the canyons mm. and and the sense of space, but it's in this vast open place um, that gives you a fully different perspective of, of where you stand in the universe you know you it's impossible to live in the southwest and not understand that you're in a galaxy and mm. in a universe you know whereas in the mountains it's impossible to, it's impossible to be there and not understand that the the borders that we think that separate us from the earth itself are really not not real they're mm. much they're much looser than we think they are
0: but of course, historically, right, mountains really defined when, when people were less able to climb over mountains in various ways. They define cultures, even in close proximity, as very distinct between language and food and culture and traditions. I'm thinking in in Central Europe where wildly different, wildly distinctly different cultures and food traditions and language often lived in incredibly close proximity to each other except for the mountains that were separating.
2: So let me tell you a food story that I love from the Appalachians that has to do with one of our major food groups which is beans. Um, And and by beans I don't mean mean the pot of a bean I mean a bean that has a bean in it because that was our pro and that's that's what we grew, and uh, we ate green beans and we ate dried beans. But you you would have a bean seed, and bean green beans will mutate very easily um, based on where the sun comes in or different chemicals. They the bean itself actually will change in a generation or two. So my family would have a bean. Say we would have um, 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 my cousin Ethel. Um, uh, um, my aunt Ethel actually and Uncle Clifton grew a really beautiful half runner bean it had a, a kind of purpley bean inside of it if they had given each of their children one of those beans and their child had moved as they did to another part of town or another part of the holler or over the hill and you plant that bean in about two or three generations it would have different, a different taste and a different characteristic and you would name it and so the beans of the Appalachian Mountains have these amazing names. there's the lazy wife bean um, there's the case knife bean um, there are our Christmas beans um, there's the soldier bean there's the roan mountain bean there's the dovis um the doris the Dois Chalmers bean <laughs> um, uh, there are there are myriad preacher beans because when the preacher came on Sunday you would give him as he was leaving a handful of beans to plant in his garden and the preacher would take that to the next house and give those people your beans (laughs) and, and take other beans so there were so preacher beans were kind of a generic bean but yeah it's that it's that thing that that people think of people as being like those beans that that when when one house Begins its day with sun in the morning, and another house closes its day with the sunset in the evening. You you have a different sense of the world you live in. You have a different you have a different spirit, maybe our soul.
0: Ronnie Lundy, thank you for
2: joining us. Thank you very much.
6: My name is Jessica Harris. I use my middle initial B as in boy. I actually have a doctorate, so I am Dr. Jessica B. Harris, and I am by avocation of food historian, and I am a food historian basically by avocation because I started working in food history before it was a discipline. So I've been writing about food and history since probably the 1970s. Uh, I have written or edited um, about 17 books dealing with the food, well probably Twelve or thirteen dealing with the foods of the African diaspora, and um, and articles you don't want to know how many because I don't know how many, and I um, I like to think that uh, I have worked on a culinary continuum between this hemisphere and the African continent. Um,
0: That's kind of it in as much
6: of a nutshell as I can give you.
0: Because obviously I know that you've looked very much at Creole traditions and the Afro-Caribbean diaspora and all of those food ways. Did it it change anything or or solidify anything? I don't think it it...
6: changed anything per se. (laughs) I think one of the things that, that always happens at events of this sort is In some cases, it crystallizes something. There may have been a thought that was sort of noodling around somewhere, but you hear some other people say something that's parallel to it or somewhat like it, and it's like, oh, okay, yeah. And I think the thing that was crystallized for me was the idea of in the kind of cookbook that I like to read and the kind of cookbook that I hope I write, it is often as much about storytelling about the recipe the how the why the where the what as it is about the preparation of the recipe the simple you know one cup of this two cups of that and I think that that was the thing that crystallized for me that 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 really is storytelling and that a lot of what we take on and a lot of what we take away when we look at food comes to us through the storytelling almost as much as it comes to us through the taste.
0: Do you think then, would you add storytelling to the definition of what, when someone describes what regionalism is? I mean, obviously it's kind of a component of culture, but...
6: Well, I think some of regionalism may come from the fact that we share the same stories. If you come from the same region, and all of the other things that happen, you know, gender and uh, race and ethnicity and class and all of those other things, but if, if you can check all of those boxes in some kind of parallel similarity with other people, some of those stories may intersect.
0: Yeah, that's also something that's kind of thematically come up in our conversations about how there is a definition of regionalism in these trends, but then looking for commonality commonality that even region to region or sub-region to sub-region, there's likely more commonality than difference yet people sort of vehemently identify with, well, we make biscuits this way here, not that wrong way there. Or, where I'm from in Kansas City, where barbecues make properly rather than in Carolinas. But of story.
6: course, yeah. <laughs> and Those people in South Carolina, nobody knows what they're doing, right? But I, I think that all of those regional specificities, if you will, are part of what makes talking about regionalism so much fun i think the whole idea of being uh, and i'm, I'm going to lose the term because that's what's happening a uh, sort of culinary geographer and dealing with those regionalisms or mapping those regionalisms is something that you know were there world enough in time i would love to go back and think about looking at you know where do they eat what what's What's the dividing line between you know that mustard sauce and that red vinegary sauce in terms of barbecue, and how do all of those things parse out? Where is the line, and, and uh, Ronnie Lundy used a beautiful word today, the liminal point of a certain kind of gumbo as opposed to a certain other kind of gumbo, as opposed to people who put potato salad in their gumbo, as opposed to rice. And you know all of those things then become interesting. So yeah.
0: I see. It, it, it's a continuum. It's think, a
6: continuum. We, it, it, it's, it's a never-ending continuum, which <laughs> is probably more to the point.
0: Well, and, and I think key to understanding regionalism is it's not finite, and that it it exists, but it morphs and the region changes, or it expands or it, contracts. It
6: morphs and changes with time, with with uh, with those other things that I mentioned. You know, race and class and gender and all. Uh, I guess a region really is
0: something that's in your head. Jessica Harris, thank you, Doctor Jessica Harris, thank you
7: for joining. you welcome. Us. Hi, I am Joe Yonan. I'm the food and dining editor of the Washington Post.
0: Welcome, Joe. So, are there particular aha moments or things that stood out, or things that you didn't expect from the conversations today on regionalism?
7: I think for me, the the one thing that stood out it was in a it was in the panel on the Pacific Northwest. But Eduardo Jordan, um, who has a re- who has connections to the South and has the restaurant June Baby, which celebrates um, southern food. Um, you know, he talked about the hyper regionality of of the South itself, and and uh, I thought that was a really great reminder. And I kind of kind of wasn't ready to. Uh, that was surprising to hear him to hear him say that, especially from someone who's not um, immersed in the South at the moment. Although I guess he certainly is in his restaurant in a way. Um, but to see the South in the nuanced way. Um just like how important I said I, I think regionalism is to the idea of America as a whole, I do think that within each region, it's also important to understand the uh, differences even in that region. And so that comment I thought was really an important one.
0: So do you think that there's an inherent diver- definition of diversity by diversity? dividing America into regions you're you're reminding people that it isn't homogenous and that's all the same that that helps people embrace that maybe American strength
7: is through diversity yes absolutely I mean I um the book that I edited last year America the Great Cookbook I was just talking to someone about um celebrates the diversity of the American food scene and it's all through the people um and because of migration patterns and um and historical um, uh, you know, connections to indigenous people, um, the makeup of our population is is diverse in the country as a whole, but it also varies so much from state to state and city to city and region to region. There's all these interesting webs that connect us, um, but but we're not all the same. So and I do think that that's a beautiful, amazing. Purely wonderfully American phenomenon that we have so many different kinds of people who are here from all over the world and um, and have brought their foods with them and it, and they've they've connected with so many other people to change those foods and those foods have adapted and um, exploded and um, and 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 just changed with really with with. Um, such beauty. So, yeah, I think think that diversity is the single thing that makes America so incredible.
0: And it's interesting that there's still, when you go outside of America, when you define what is American food, the the (laughs) stereotypes are still there. Oh, it's just burgers and fries and maybe steak, but that, burgers and hot dogs, I guess. But yet, if you spend time in or live in America, that's so far from what's going on. But it's funny that that hasn't changed that much as of yet, but maybe it's the diversity because it is such an amalgamation of f- f- variations on foods from different cultures that have come to America from around the world that they don't identify them as being American. Right? Do you see regionalism as a way that that will become more familiar to the outside world that they'll start getting into oh, well, this is this American region's food. Or-
7: right, absolutely. Like a cheesesteak is American and a whoopie pie is American and salmon grilled on a plank is American and and um, hot tamales, delta tamales are American. Um, and I think the key is, you know, getting those foods exposed to a wider audience i don't know if that's just a matter of maybe we just need more internationally released food movies (laughs) i don't know what it is or chains that aren't mcdonald's to go around the world and and be an american an example of american food well maybe that's a message to chef's table that while it's great that they've
0: been so global they need to do more of a, a regional tour of america
7: i love that idea Absolutely. We will get on that.
0: Joe Yonan, thanks
7: for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Pleasure.
3: I'm Ashley Rose Young. I'm the historian of the American Food History Project at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. My work here is part curatorial. I help take care of Julia Child's kitchen and also bring in new stories through oral histories and helping our curators collect objects. And part of my work here is also public facing. So I do live cooking demonstrations here at the museum where we bring in guest chefs to prepare live on stage several dishes once a month. And we use those dishes to talk about a theme in American history. Last year, we focused on migration and the influence of the movement of people on what we eat. And this year, we're focusing on regions reimagined, the importance of place and how we identify, with our surroundings and with each other and how food is so critical to that aspect of our lives.
0: It's interesting when you talk about regionalism, usually the general definitions of things don't get into power. They get into history and culture and blending and things like that, but how, how, given that panel, is power a part? Do you have to consider power in terms of defining regionalism?
3: I am always thinking about power, so I'm a trained historian and I have my PhD in history and it's just part of our discipline to constantly be thinking about power dynamics um, and who has agency. And regionalism is interesting because we often think of it in this very lighthearted way because we can so often romanticize regions. There's a very romantic aspect. And Ronnie Lundy on the first panel which was called the power of place, noted that in Appalachia, there is, she, she made the claim that Appalachia might be the most romanticized region in the United States. And when she says romanticized, she means in a somewhat positive way that there's myth around this region, there's mysteriousness, it's unknown. And so authors who weren't even from Appalachia were able to turn Appalachia into whatever they wanted to turn it into they could claim for example that there were no african americans enslaved or free leaving, living in the region because those individuals those writers had access to publishers ronnie also made the very apt point that when you romanticize a region you can do so within a negative light and she brought up the stereotypes of quote-unquote hillbillies and for her she made it's very poignant observation that throughout time, it wasn't actually people living in Appalachia who had the opportunity to frame their region. They didn't necessarily have the opportunity to say, this is what Appalachia is to me. It was always outsiders. So you have to imagine there that the power dynamics at play to be living in a region, to be consuming foods that are important to your everyday life, they're so important that you don't even realize they're important, because it's just part of who you are. Yet you're not given a space to actually express that importance. It's other people coming in, co-opting narratives about your region. and and creating these very widespread ideas about what Appalachia means to the United States, to the South as a larger region of which Appalachia is a part of. Um, And so those dynamics are really important because as a historian and as as a member of the staff here at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History, we are always striving to provide a platform for people, especially underrepresented groups and communities to tell their stories. We are creating a space for them to showcase their expertise, their lived experiences, recognizing that their voices have to be heard, and we have to change these perceptions of regions like Appalachia, of the South, these regions that are so often exoticized in our national narrative, and to really draw out those amazing dynamics and how these communities are constantly changing. You see that with Sandra Gutierrez, looking at the new Southern Latino table. The South is no longer just about cornbread. It's no longer just about fried green tomatoes. Those are part of a really important canon but there are other influences being brought in by migrant communities. Some who have existed there for generations and generations, others who are new waves of migrants coming in and they're changing the landscape of food in the South where you go to a city like New Orleans where gumbo is king, right? But now when you go to New Orleans, someone will tell you, oh, you have to try this pho restaurant, the Vietnamese food is outstanding. And that comes from the migrant community arriving in New Orleans from Vietnam in the 1970s and over time really establishing themselves as a critical part of New Orleans and its food culture. So, you know, in my other life, I'm a trained culinary historian writing a monograph on the street food history and culture of the city of New Orleans. And so I'm very interested in those dynamics of how migrant communities have constantly shaped New Orleans food culture that it is a quote-unquote creolized city in the American South but the American South is a very American South is a very creolized space always changing so dynamic that we can't buy into this idea that the south is static or that it hasn't changed since Mary Randolph you know wrote her cookbook back in the I believe 1830s or whatnot so we have to think about those, those really fluid dynamics. We try to showcase them here at the museum and in our personal research too.
0: Ashley Rose Young, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: We're grateful to be able to bring you so many voices today from the Smithsonian's Food History Weekend Roundtables. Thanks for listening. What does American regionalism mean to you? Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact juliachildfoundation.org. Please follow the foundation on social media. Our handles are at Julia Child on Facebook, at Julia Child Foundation, all one word on Instagram, and at Julia Child JCF on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at T T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. To learn more about the Smithsonian's Food History Weekend at the National Museum of American History, go to AmericanHistory.si.edu forward slash events forward slash food dash history dash weekend. Find out more about the museum's food history exhibit and how to see Julia's kitchen on AmericanHistory.si.edu forward slash exhibitions forward slash food. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please give us a review, which will really help new listeners discover the show. And don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss upcoming episodes. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after on Stitcher, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen.
2: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you,